All right. Well, um, if you're here last week, I told you to come bring in some questions. And so I want to get to those questions here in just a few minutes. Uh, but we do have quite a bit to cover here tonight as well. And we're going to try to wrap up the rapture tonight. Um, and it, uh, some of this stuff will come back up as we talk about tribulation and the millennium and, and so on. Uh, and then as we dive into the book of Revelation. But tonight I really want to give you kind of my take on specifically the rapture and, and everything. Um, and I remember, you know, or remember last week I told you, kind of just growing up, my kind of perception of the end. And, you know, it's kind of fuzzy and, and, you know, it's just kind of like, yeah, we're, you know, our spirits will go off and we'll float in the clouds and, you know, there might be some gold streets here or there, but in some mansions, it's just kind of this, kind of what we sing about and kind of what we envision. And it was just kind of that's, but it, but for me, it was very immaterial. It was very uh, not tangible and, and just kind of more kind of a spiritual ecstasy kind of reality, you know? Uh, and I think for a lot of us, that's kind of what we envision. That's kind of what we, we picture. Um, and so tonight, what I really want to do is, you know, as I've looked, you know, as I've gotten older and just read scripture and studied scripture and, and studied all these different interpretations and everything and people's different take on this, that, or the other, studying the historical context and everything, um, this is kind of where I've arrived in this season of life. And this may not be where you arrive. Um, again, we could be completely in different spots. Um, like I brought up, and as we'll continue to see over the series, that there are strong believers who love Jesus and love his word and, and are submitting to him who fall in different camps in different categories. That became obvious when I got to seminary. And uh, you have all these Southern Baptists who grew up very similar and have all these different takes on this. Like, okay, what's going on? Um, and so I, I just wanted to present tonight um, my take and, and, then, um, and then answer your questions towards the end of this. Um, and so I'm going to present this, and, and then we'll get to the questions. But in order to help you understand my take, I want to present uh, this statement to you, in which I'm going to explain more in depth here in just a moment. Um, but that statement is your first kind of point here in the handout. And the statement is this, the revealing moment, the revealing moment gives way to the revealing meeting. So your two fill in the blank words there are moment and meeting. The revealing moment gives way to the revealing meeting. And a key word in that is revealing. You can circle that because we see this, this word reveal pop up quite a bit. Um, you know, Paul, like in Romans chapter 8, he, he, he kind of talks about this language where all creation was subjected to this bondage and this decay and groans and is looking forward to the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And you also see like in 1 Corinthians 13, you remember the love is patient, love is kind. We we, we hear this passage a lot at weddings and stuff and say, oh, that's so sweet, you know, and, and it is sweet. Um, but the context is the church. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, his whole presentation on the church and relating it to a human body and so on. And then he talks about how this love is present and, and in essence kind of binds us. Um, and then right after that, he, he talks about, um, well, I just got, let me just read it. It's, it's so good. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, 
This is what he says here. So 1 Corinthians 13, so he talks about the love is patient, love is kind. He talks about this love, and it never fails. Um, but then he says this, going on in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13, but, there, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, and that's a key word there, it kind of Paul's vision here, especially when you think about 1 Thessalonians 4 and his Romans 8 passages and 1 Corinthians 15. When completeness comes, when this perfection or the culmination of all things comes, what is in part disappears. What is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And what Paul kind of envisions here is this, this revealing, this, this moment of completion and perfection. And I think what he has in mind here, too, is also what he has in mind in Romans 8, this revealing. And we see in part right now, but one day we will see fully. And the author of Hebrews is kind of getting to this in Hebrews chapter 2 as well. It's like we look at the world right now and we say, well, it doesn't appear to be like what we think it's going to be. He says, yeah, but, but one day it will be. And so there's kind of this anticipation and expectation. So you can circle that word reveal because it is a big reveal. And you kind of see the ultimate climax of it in Revelation 21 and, and really into 22, this big reveal moment. Uh, but first, I need to explain what I find difficult with rapture theology. And, and some of this I'll explain more in the coming weeks, especially as we look at the tribulation. We will really look at the historical context really around Jesus' day and things that were going on with Rome, things that were going on with the nation of Israel at that time, uh, the building of the temple again in Jesus' day. I mean, they were in the process of building it. And they wanted it, Herod wanted it to be bigger and better and more spectacular than Solomon's temple. Um, it was a big moment and had not been, it got finished in 63 AD, seven years before it was destroyed. Um, it's pretty spectacular. You're going to be mind, like just blown when you look at the timeline of some of the stuff. And then you sit back and you just see everything that, that Jesus said, did, and his timing. It was so brilliant in how it all came together. Um, and so some of this I'll, I'll be presenting as we go along. Um, but, um, but it's really what I find after studying historical context and, and studying the, the biblical narrative from Genesis on to Revelation. Because again, you have all these human authors written over 1,400 years, but there is one ultimate author of this book before you, and, and he is brilliant and how it's all been brought together. And I hope you can see one thing tonight that, that'll prove that. Um, but then also studying these individual passages that people often point to in, in defense of rapture theology. Um, and so it kind of all brought together for me some difficulties. And what I mean by the word difficult is not, oh, this is too difficult for me to understand. I'm going to throw the bathwater out or the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. That's not what I mean by difficult. What I mean is from a biblical perspective, in light of historical context, 
biblical passages, the biblical narrative or the story of the message, and how some of these passages are used to argue for the rapture, I find a rapture of the church highly implausible. Not impossible, implausible. That's a, that's a key word there. Um, and tonight I hope to explain why and then to answer your questions on it. Um, but let's start with my big three, uh, why I find, or what I find difficult with rapture theology. And it's really three things here. Number one, this is your next point here. Number one, what I find difficult with rapture theology is the idea of phases. The idea of phases. P-H-A-S-E-S, the idea of phases. Because as you'll see there, rapture theology breaks the second coming of Jesus into multiple comings of Jesus. Into multiple comings of Jesus. And so, kind of going back here to our kind of little drawing here, right? You see the arrows pointing up kind of represent the, the rapture. The arrows coming down kind of represent where your take is on Jesus coming down and establishing his millennial kingdom. But really with rapture theology, what we believe with that is that Jesus comes down and gathers up his church, catches up his church, right? This is the image that you see in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is the big rapture passage that people look to, is that Jesus comes down and catches up his church. Um, but according to rapture theology, that's kind of a hidden second coming, a secret second coming. So what we envision is all of a sudden we're sitting here drinking our coffee, writing our notes, and then one of us disappears. Hopefully not just one of us. Maybe, maybe all of us disappear, <laughs> leaving our clothes, and, you know, and people are like, what just happened or something? You know, that's kind of the, the image we see. If you've seen the movies, you've read books, things like that. And so what we tend to envision is a secret or hidden coming of Jesus, but that's not the only coming down. So then, if you keep fast-forwarding, well, then you'd say, okay, if you hold to a pre-millennial um, view, you'd believe that Jesus will then come again after seven years of tribulation. So he's going to come, establish his kingdom. But then, if you hold that view, at the end of the thousand years, you'd say, okay, then he's going to go up, get the rest of the, the believers, and then come back down. And so really, if you hold to all of it, and you follow it all out, you really believe in three second comings of Jesus, a hidden one, a visible one, and then, oh, I got to go get everybody else now after the thousand years and come back down again. So this idea of phases, um, again, it, it really holds to multiple comings of Jesus. And from the biblical perspective, to me, that does not seem to be the case. The biblical perspective is pretty clear that the appearing of Jesus is the big moment which ushers in so many things. We'll see that in just a moment. Um, but every time the scriptures are talking about the second coming of Jesus, it's very clear what they anticipate and what they see and envision is one singular event. One singular moment. Even just listen to how Paul refers to Jesus is appearing in his second letter to Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, so 
Again, Paul kind of sees Jesus is appearing. Jesus is appearing. In view of his appearing and his kingdom, Timothy, I give you this charge. And he starts talking about being ready in season and out of season. Um, as the song goes, as we were talking about last week, I wish we'd all been ready, right? Be ready. Because no matter whether you, hold, whether you hold to a rapture or not, Jesus is coming back and he'll come like a thief of the night. So be ready in season and out of season. Um, remember Jesus talks about the parable of the virgins, you know, who weren't ready and some of them were, some of them weren't, that kind of thing. So be ready. His coming, his appearing will happen in a, it, like a thief of the night. But then, then Paul goes on in verse 8 and says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You hear this language a lot, on that day, on that day, on the day of his appearing, the day the Son of Man comes, all that kind of, on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing or who love his appearing. So in other words, what Paul has envisioned here is, um, again, the culmination of all things, this big revealing, this moment in which we take possession of the inheritance that God has in store for those who love him. Um, and so even that language, his appearing, it's this singular one moment or event. And Paul, like John, Peter, even Jesus himself, um, again, refers to Jesus' appearing as his appearing or the day or his coming or the coming of the Son of Man. It's always presented and viewed as this one singular event or moment that brings with it many things, but not necessarily many appearings of Jesus. Number two, the idea of escapism. The idea of escapism is your number two. Well, I have trouble with this, and you'll see the word there, escapism, just under the letter A. So the idea of escapism, and A is the escapism from the physical. The escapism from the physical. Rapture theology, it's premise, its implication, is that what the church really, really needs. Remember, John Darby had this thought that the church is in shambles, and its only hope is the rapture. So what the church really needs is the rapture, meaning that our overall hope is to escape the physical, that what we look forward to is to escape this physical world. That's, that is the premise Subconscious conclusion, at least, with rapture theology. And why I find that troubling, and there are more layers to it, but to me, what I find troubling is that kind of thinking, whether we realize it or not, is, is more closely related to Gnosticism than it is Christianity. And what, it, what is Gnosticism? Well, Gnosticism is this teaching, this belief system that was prevalent in the days of Paul and John, um, the early church, the apostles, it, uh, a lot of John's writing, especially like 1 John, um, what, what Paul was dealing with in, in Corinth with, with the church, especially around 1 Corinthians 15, this is why he defends the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus so much. It's because Gnosticism was prevalent. 
And what does it mean? Well, well, Gnosticism, the, the Greek word that comes out of that is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, uh, gnosis, which is just a Greek word that means kind of knowledge, but it's a specific kind of knowledge. It's, it's kind of like a, a powerful knowledge, to, to kind of like secret knowledge to know hidden mysteries within deep religious things. And so not everybody has gnosis, um, but only the, the special ones do. And they have this special knowledge of these hidden mysteries. Um, but, but a big idea within this belief system is your, your next point here. A big idea within Gnosticism is that the physical, the physical world itself, matter, um, that chair you're sitting in, is evil or bad. A big idea with, within Gnosticism is that the physical world itself, matter itself, is bad or it's evil. And the spiritual is good. And the spiritual is good. Which means that a lot of people who bought into Gnosticism saw the ultimate goal in life is to escape the physical. What we have to look forward to is to escape this physical world, which is evil. Your, your body is evil, it, it's bad, you know, because it belongs to the physical world, and so we need to escape it or to do away with the physical entirely, which, again, led many people to believe in John's day and Paul's day that God must not have and would not have taken on flesh. Why would God, who is spirit, remember that's what Jesus told the woman at the well, why would God, who is spirit, take on flesh when flesh itself is bad? Or he would not have been raised physically from the dead. He would have escaped his physical body. Or his um, spirit would have just rested on the physical and not actually become the physical. And you can see this at work, like in, uh, just listen to these words in 1 John 4. If you want to turn there, you can. But 1 John 4, just these few verses here. Listen to what John writes. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, has come in the flesh is from God. But... Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus having come in the flesh is not from God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is already now in the world. Um, massive religion who buys into this is Islam. They would, they would say, hey, okay, a couple things. Either Jesus was just a prophet, that kind of thing, because God would not come on, he would not become a human being. That's just beneath himself to do that. Um, or many people would argue the spirit of God rested upon this Jesus from Nazareth. But the time he gets to the cross and all that kind of stuff, the spirit leaves him and everything like that. Have you ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness? This is the kind of language that this is kind of the idea belief system they buy into. And it was prevalent all the way going back to the early church. And it, it is Gnosticism. But at the core, at the heart of Gnosticism is we need to escape the physical. You know, that there's something bad with matter and stuff like that. But remember, who created the physical? 
who saw that it was good? God. It's not that matter itself, it's not that your body is bad, it's that it's corrupted and broken by sin and the ultimate curse of sin is death. It's why the universe is running out of energy, it's why it's dying, it's why you and I are running out of energy and dying because of sin in the physical world. But we believe as Christians that God did something about it. And this now goes back to the death, burial, and resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus. He came back imperishable with immortality, his physical body. Remember, he appeared like a ghost before them. He's showing up in rooms where the doors are locked. That's why they think, oh my gosh, what is this? He's like, hey, it's not a ghost before you. Touch and feel, you know. And it wasn't a different body. It's not that he left the old body and got another body over here. That body that was put into the grave was radically changed and transformed, raised and perishable, raised with immortality. And so this is a big deal. And again, in 2 John, um, he, he revisits this again. In 2 John, verses 7 through 11, he says, Listen, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus the Christ as coming in the flesh, they've gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and is the Antichrist. So watch out that you don't lose what we've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in this teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So it's something to be really, really on guard of. Because again, at the heart of Gnosticism, hey, we should escape, escape the physical, escape the physical. That's our, that's our ultimate hope. Because there's something wrong with matter. There's something wrong with the physical. So let's just do away with it and escape it. That is not the gospel. That's not what we were taught by Paul, John, and they're just building on the teaching of Jesus. And again, this is the heart behind 1 Corinthians 15. People are saying, no, come on, he didn't rise physically from the dead. And come on, even if you know, what's the big deal? Why is it so important? And Paul's like, if he didn't, you and I are still in our sin. And we're, we're, we're a joke. We're to be pitied among all men because we actually think we have hope. But he, if he hadn't come back from the dead, he's just some fool who died on a cross like many other criminals. And so the physical world, as we see in Romans 8, this is Paul's big, big focus on the physical world. Um, in Romans 8, the physical world, the cosmos, the universe, awaits, groans um, for all this to be over. Uh, awaits what happened with Jesus' body, for the curse of death and sin to be gone away with. Not that the physical is evil, but it is subjected to the same bondage and decay that you and I were subjected to. Um, and so as we'll see later, no matter where we fall on this level, the main thing for the Christian believer is when we look ahead to a new heaven and a new earth, and we'll see that at the end of Revelation, but we, we must know that a part of that is perfection, unity between the physical and the spiritual. Uh, that is what God has in the story. You say, well, how do I know it? Because I just look at the resurrection of Jesus, that he has perfected the physical and the spiritual together, and you see this new heaven and new earth coming together like a bride and a groom on their, their wedding day and so on. So it's a big deal. It really is a big deal. 
Um, so Gnosticism, we, we cannot go down that route, this escapism from the physical. Uh, so number two, the idea of escapism from the physical. Uh, and then B, the escapism from the pain. And you can put in parentheses there, the tribulation. And we're really going to break down the tribulation here in a couple weeks. But I think what's so alluring to rapture theology and the way John Darby was presenting it a little over 100 years ago is that it implies or declares, hey, church, don't worry about bad things to come. God's going to take you away. You won't experience some great tribulation. I've heard this from a lot of people. Oh, we don't have to worry. He's going to take us away. That sounds really nice here in the Western world in a free United States of America. But there are believers right now, brothers and sisters right now, who are being tortured, beaten, set on fire, imprisoned, uh, losing jobs, losing... Like, and it's been going on since the beginning. It's been going on ever since Jesus. Um, the only spot that you and I might come away with this kind of thinking is Revelation 3.10. Otherwise, nowhere else does Scripture even say or promise, hey, I'm going to keep you from tribulation. If anything, it's the opposite. You will face tribulation. You are in tribulation. But take heart. You've overcome the world. You've overcome the flesh, the Antichrist, the evil one. This is John's whole presentation in 1 John. You stand in victory right now because you're in Christ. You're seated with him, Paul would say, in the heavenly places. And Jesus would say, take heart, I've overcome the world. He would say that you're in me, I in you, and so on. Thus he would say, in essence, I'll be with you in tribulation, not keep you away from tribulation. Listen to what Jesus said, John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Okay, we're going to have peace. We're going to have peace. And then he goes on right after that and says, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Thanks for the pep talk. That sounds great. In other words, take heart, your tribulation is not the end of the story. Even if they hang you on a tree and slaughter you, you got resurrection coming. You got a whole new world coming. Listen to what John writes in Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. I'm your brother in this. I'm your partner in the tribulation. And what's that tribulation? Well, this is, again, this goes back to Jesus' teaching. Hey, if, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they abused me, mocked me, humiliated me, shamed me, wrongfully accused me, if they abandoned me, if they isolated me, if they publicly and humiliatingly killed me, what do you think they're going to do to you? You're my body. <laughs> You're my representation on earth. You're my followers. And this world, just like it rejected Jesus, is going to reject us. They're going to hate us. And so... This is where John comes from. He says, man, you are my, my brothers, my sisters, and partners in the tribulation. And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's, that's crucial language there. You're my partners in the kingdom. And you're my partners in the patient endurance. 
Endurance is having the power and the ability to withstand tribulation. That comes not from yourselves, but from the Holy Spirit of God in you. So we are partners with him, and he's writing this on the island called Patmos. Why? Because he was sent there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's literally facing persecution as he's writing that. That's why he says, you're my partners in the tribulation. So nowhere in the New Testament does God imply or say or promise you will be kept from it. You say, well, what about Revelation 3.10? Well, let's look at Revelation 3.10. And there's a lot here with these seven churches. Jesus is addressing the church in Philadelphia. And he says in verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. There's that endurance again. Because you have endured. Let me slip over here to it. He says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. He doesn't say tribulation. He says trial. That is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth or to try the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I would argue that he is not talking about the great tribulation, though I do believe we are going to face great tribulation. We'll look at that when we dive into that. But the language here is a trial. Think about when we think of trials. We think of judgment, right? We think of a verdict coming down. That's, in essence, what the great judgment is going to be, is a verdict. Um, remember Jesus in John chapter 3, he said, listen, you know, those who, in essence, who reject Jesus, they stand condemned already. Why? Because they've rejected the only begotten son. Right? As Peter says, there's only one name given to us under heaven by which we must be saved. And so, do I receive him or do I reject him? Do I kiss him as Lord or do I crucify him? And so the judgment in, is really just a verdict. Did you receive my son or not? Are you in my son or not? And if you are, welcome to the new world. If you're not, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? Then away from me. You depart from me. He talks later on about outer darkness. In other words, whatever he has in store for that new creation, the wicked will not be there. And I would argue what Jesus is saying here is that for those who endure until the very end, and especially when you read the end of every church and kind of what he says um you know the, the what does he say um like here, here's an example to the one who is victorious i will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as i was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne he says that to laodicea at, at the end of every church he, he gives description almost to like the same promises that he's given all throughout the new testament same language that Paul used and John used and that he used in the Gospels. And so what I would argue what he is talking about is I will keep you from judgment. And so why do you say that? Well, if you go to like a second Peter chapter three, Peter is talking about the end, the coming of the Lord on that day. And he says in verse seven of chapter three, he says, but by the same word. 
the same word that brought the flood on the world, by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for not water or flood, but fire. Being kept until what? The day of judgment. I would call it the verdict. And the destruction of the ungodly. And so think of Noah and his family because that's the, the context that Peter brings up. He says it'll be very similar to like it was in the days of Noah. Um, Jesus brings this up in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Hey, it's going to be in essence like the days of Noah. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? Right? Is that God brought what? Judgment. He brought judgment. But there was somebody that he kept from that judgment by protecting them in the ark. And that was Noah and his family, right? The righteous. And so the judgment comes, the flood comes, and he protected Noah and his family from that judgment in the same way that God protected the Israelites in that last plague from the angel of death by the blood over the doorpost, right? He protected them with the blood. He protects them with the ark from this judgment that's coming. These are foreshadows to Jesus. Jesus is the ark. Judgment is coming. Those in the ark, those in Jesus, will be delivered or saved from that which is coming. This is language we see in the New Testament. And in the same way that those who are in the houses with the blood of the lamb on it will be saved from the angel of death that is coming. That this is the, the imagery that Jesus has to this church in Philadelphia is that, hey, listen, uh, or in Sardis, sorry, listen, when judgment comes, I will keep you from that. I will protect you from that. Um, so I would argue it is keeping us from that judgment, not necessarily tribulation. Um, you say, well, what about Luke 17 then? Luke 17 is, remember, we, we've looked at this, and, and you can go back and read verses 22 through 37. We're going to look more at that, especially when we get into the tribulation. But it talks about um, where he says, like, I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left, right? This is kind of where we picture somebody just being sucked up um, and taken away. Um, but again, he brings up the flood in this context. Who was taken away in the flood narrative? What's that? The bad, the, bad, the wicked, not the righteous. Um, and who was swept away after that 10th plague? Remember, the, the Egyptians changed their mind. They come running after him. He parts the Red Sea. And what do the Israelites get to do when they cross the other side and God caused the water to come down. He, he, they literally got to watch their enemies, the wicked, swept away. This, what Jesus has in mind here is not the church being swept away into outer darkness somewhere else, but the wicked. How do I know that? Because they asked him, where, Lord, are they going to go? He said to them, where the corpse is. There the vultures will gather. That, that doesn't sound too heavenly to me. <laughs> and so, again, he's referencing like the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, and you see the wicked being taken away, taken away, not the righteous. And even in this context, in Luke 17, this Olivet Discourse, was he's given these examples 
that we picture the church being taken away, it's actually the wicked being taken away. And then we might say, well, what about Revelation 4? Revelation 4, after he addresses the seven churches, we get into chapter 4. And again, we'll look more at this too when we look at Tribulation, Millennium, and the book of Revelation. But he says, after this I looked, this is John writing again, there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, um, nowhere in just basic biblical hermeneutics, which is basically our process for interpreting scripture, do we walk away from this implying that John represents the church? And this is the irony of dispensationalism. It says, hey, we need to read it strictly literal. Then read it literal. It's John. It's not the church. Um, and some people already see the church is not explicitly mentioned again until the end of Revelation. But that doesn't mean the church is not present during things. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. That doesn't mean God is not present and active. And actually, it's very intentional by the author and the way he constructs the book of Esther. And so, and we'll look more at that with Revelation. I would just argue that that's just not, that there's several reasons why that's just not good interpretation to walk away from that. And so I take all that into consideration to say, um, the phases of it I find difficult, the escapism of it I find difficult with the physical and the pain, meaning the tribulation. But number three, also what I find difficult about rapture theology is the idea of secrecy. The idea of secrecy. In Scripture, the appearing, the second coming of Jesus, is always accompanied with visibility, sound, and sight. Transparency, it's all-consuming, it's obvious. Again, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it's the grand finale. It's not us second-guessing, was that the coming of Jesus? Was that the hidden coming of Jesus that we were waiting for? Is that the secret coming of Jesus? That, ironically, Paul's ultimate point in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that his coming will not be secret. It will not be hidden. It's the big shebang. It'll be obvious. You'll hear it. You'll see it. It's always accompanied with a loud trumpet, but not just a loud trumpet. There's other things that come with it. Loud trumpet. Every place there seems to be, when we're talking about the second coming of Jesus, a loud trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, Matthew 24. But it's not just that you hear, you also see. Jesus relates this to Matthew 24. He says it's, it, it'll be like lightning lighting up the sky. We saw some lightning this morning, right? You, you always know when lightning is present, you see it. It's visible. I remember sitting on a porch when I was probably Noah's age, eight years old, and there was a storm when we were growing up in Ponga City, and lightning struck a, an electrical pole. Just this massive, like, bright light. It was, it was crazy. Um, it was obvious. It was very, very clear. And that's language that Jesus wants us to see. It'll be like lightning consuming the sky. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3. It talks about the universe melting away, the heavens. It's a word to mean kind of the, the cosmos, the universe melting away. 
And even John, in Revelation 1-7, quoting some Old Testament passages, says, every eye will see him. And he's talking about the timing when Jesus will be coming on the clouds. That's the imagery that, that Paul paints in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a visible, one singular event that is heard and seen. Um, so these are my main reasons why I have difficulty, and just a summary of why I have difficulty finding the rapture as a plausible event. I'm not saying impossible, but as a plausible event from a biblical perspective. But that leads some questions here. So then, if there weren't a rapture, then what do these passages envision? What picture are they presenting? What moment, what meeting that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, that meeting in the year? What does he envision them? Well, this brings me to this big reveal, this big reveal, which introduces a moment and a meeting that carries with it so, so much. And it's what we look forward to when we love his appearing, when we long for his appearing. This is what we are looking forward to. Us taking possession of the inheritance. Uh, uh, us seeing with our own eyes what is in store. And so um, this last little statement here, if I could summarize all of this, I'm going to explain it in just a minute, but if I could summarize it in one statement, it would be this. The revealing moment of Jesus' appearing gives way to the revealing meeting between the groom and his bride, in which the two will then live happily ever after, forever and ever, in a new world that is both physical and spiritual. So the big reveal, in a way, is like that of a bride on her wedding day. We see a lot of this marriage analogy you see it in John chapter 14. You see it at the end of Revelation. You see the bride of the lamb. You, you often hear about the bridegroom who is Jesus and his bride, his people. Uh, the big reveal is like that of a bride on her wedding day. The waiting over, the doors open, the big revealing of the bride, right? Uh, the veil being lifted and the groom becoming one with his bride. And the bride in all her perfection and glory will take possession of her new inheritance. And you, you see this kind of language throughout Scripture. Again, John 14, when Jesus is not wanting their hearts to be troubled, he's trying to paint for them a marriage analogy with the house, right? And he talks about, in my father's house are many rooms, and you know, if this were not so, I wouldn't have told you, so on, and I go and prepare a place for you. Um, th this is crucial, because in that day and age, you know, this is wedding terminology, and the father of a house would finally give the, the okay for the son to say the house is finished. Now you can go get your bride and bring her home. And you see this language pop up elsewhere. You see it in Hebrews. We just went over this in our life here, Hebrews 3, where God is what? Building a house. He's the builder of this house. And you see that kind of language, this, this structure being built. You see the church being described like a, a tabernacle or a temple, um, even as we see a city, even. But you see the bride being revealed in all her perfection and glory and taking possession of her inheritance. And in the context of Scripture, a new world 
living happily ever after in that new world, physical and spiritual. And I just want to just give you a quick glimpse of this before we take questions. Revelation 21. If you have your Bible, just flip over there real quick. Revelation 21. I bring this passage up a lot because you got to know the ending, you know, of a story that, that sheds light on sometimes the rest of the story. And what I want to show you right here is, man, this is God at work. And the structure and the presentation of the last kind of image in Scripture is very similar to the structure and presentation of the very first pieces of Scripture going all the way back to Genesis. What do I mean by that? So if you look at Revelation 21, 1 through 8, after the judgment and everything like that, what I would call the verdict, then what does John see? He sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as what? As a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their gods. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. Who are those who are victorious? Those in Christ. You have victory in Christ. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all the liars... They will be consigned to the fiery, fiery lake of burning sulfur. That is the second death. And we get to spend a lot of time talking about that. Okay, so he just gives you kind of a cosmic presentation of what is to come. That's the image. New heaven, new earth, us with God, God with us, this, this new Jerusalem coming out. But then what does he do from verse 9 to chapter 22, verse 5? So he gives you the overall big picture, one through eight, and then after that, he now gets really specific and kind of uh, magnifies something or someone. And who is it or what is it? It's the new Jerusalem, the city. So then one of the seven angels, verse nine, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then he goes in this great detailed description of the new Jerusalem, which he had just told you is the bride of the Lamb, which you should know is the church. That's language that we see all throughout the New Testament, even from Jesus himself. So he now gives you this overall cosmic picture of what the world to come is going to look like. New heavens, new earth, meaning the spiritual and the physical together in perfection. The, the veil, whatever is keeping this back. So like think of like this, this curtain here taken away. The spiritual and the physical. God's world and this world 
together but redeemed and restored and transformed, just like Jesus, who is the first act of a new creation or the first one from the dead. So he gives you that overall cosmic picture, but then verses 9 all the way to chapter 22 through 5, he gives you the individual specific picture of his bride. The church, in all her glory, in all her perfection, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-gifted, multi-brilliant and beautiful in her glory. He describes her like a new Jerusalem. This is language that goes back to the Old Testament. When you read like the Second Chronicles of the world, First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, you'll see language begin to pop up where God will say, on, on Jerusalem, he put his name. He put his name on or in Jerusalem. Well, it's a foreshadow to the new Jerusalem. We, his church, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We, we are in Christ. We belong to Christ. We are with Christ. And what he is describing here is what I would argue is what Paul envisions in Romans 8, the revealing of the sons and daughters, the church, the revealing of the bride, this one singular moment in which we, the church, take possession of the inheritance. And as he uses the language here in which we reign with him. Remember, we are seated with him. We are seated in him. We have victory in him. And so you see that who is the crown of this new creation? The church. He did all this for you. You're the new Jerusalem. You have the spirit of God in you. You are the sons and daughters of God. You are the new Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about this, this is how it all ties together. That's the last image John gets. And we'll look more at that image. It's so brilliant. You go all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 1, we get a description of the cosmic creation of all things, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens, the, the universe, and the earth, right? And we get all this description of his creation, and we see that in chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And then the seventh day, God rested from his work. And then we get to verse 4 of chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then he spent the rest of chapter 2 focused on who? Humanity. The creation of male, female, those in his image. And it's very clear when you read Genesis 1 and 2, especially in the original text, you see how much language and time is spent on the creation of humanity, that humanity was the crown of this creation. We, we were to walk with God. We were to rule with God. Dominion and kingship is a very um, key theme in these opening verses. We were to rule with him and reign with him and walk with him. And we were in this garden and everything was nice and good. But then what happened? Genesis 3, right? We rebelled. We turned against him. We, we wanted to create for ourselves us in our own image. We wanted to decide what was right and wrong for ourselves. So we rebelled against that image and so on. But God enacts a plan to redeem and to restore us and his creation. And ultimately that happens in and through Jesus, his life, burial, death, or his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And he ushers in a new humanity. In and through his Holy Spirit. This is the language Paul used. You're a new creation. You're a new person. He talked about this in Ephesians and in Galatians. And you're a new person. 
in Christ and through Christ. And now what do you see? You, you see all this building up to a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. He gives you the big overall vast uh, description of it. And then he focuses in on his bride, who is the new humanity in and through Jesus, conformed and created after the image of Jesus. Thus he has supremacy. As John says, I don't know what we will be like, but I know we'll be like him. And so you see this building up to the end, the big finale, the grand moment is his church, the new humanity, the new creation in Christ in which he has subjected the world to come. The author of Hebrews mentions this in Hebrews chapter 2. To you, the body of Jesus, and you will reign with Jesus. Be with him forever and ever. So in other words, with this whole book, you see God's love written to us. He did all this for us. And what he has in store, new heavens, new earth, is for those who love him, for those who are faithful to him, who believe in him. He has in store something spectacular. So I tell people, picture the most beautiful place here on earth. Picture the most beautiful place in the cosmos. You'll see the effects of sin there still. Picture a new world, heaven and earth together with no effects of sin, no death, no darkness, no evil. That's the world he has in store for you his church, and you will be with him, he will be with you in this new paradise to live happily ever after, forever and ever and ever. So he brings it all together in this brilliant little bow. And it's so good. It's so good. All right, what are your questions? We've got a few minutes. What are your questions? We'll talk more about some of this as we get into tribulation and millennium. But what are your questions about any of that? Can I muddle your thoughts some more? John, I got, we'll go Jonathan here. This is just a, a, a segment of it where it talks about in the second coming that uh, those that were asleep will, will come and be with uh, meat, Jesus in the air. Mm-hmm. And how, do, how do you how do you uh, balance that with other places where Jesus talks about uh, today you will be with me in paradise? Mm-hmm. Where, where we have two different pictures of mm-hmm. post death. So I would say <clears throat> Paul talks about elsewhere, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if I were to die today, I would believe my spirit, my soul, would be with the Lord in heaven. Um, and what Paul envisions, if, if he in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4 is envisioning that moment, right, the second coming of Jesus when we will share in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, I would argue 1 Corinthians 15, what he is envisioning there is not a rapture, but God, Jesus coming, the culmination of all this, and you and I, physically now sharing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, raised imperishable, raised with immortality, raised in honor and glory. Um, as he talks about in that, that language he uses is we must be clothed in these things. It, it, it's almost like the world to come, you have to be transformed for what's in store. Um, 
you, you got to be properly dressed, so to speak, to stay at the wedding party. Jesus kind of uses that imagery. Um, it, it's what I would say is what Paul is envisioning there, even those who have gone before us, because that's what he's trying to argue or explain to the, the Thessalonian believers is that you haven't missed anything. Like, we're all going to share in this together. And that moment, whenever he says is the time, you're going to share in that resurrection. We're going to share in the new world together and live happily ever after. And the Hebrews chapter 11, at the end of that, talks about even those who have gone before us in the faith. We, together with them, will share in this moment. Um, and again, even as Paul says in Galatians, like those are the faith of Abraham. If you have the same faith as Abraham, you are his offspring. That's what he says. You're his offspring. We'll look more at that. But um, So I would say... What Paul is, is envisioning there, and practically what this looks like, I don't, I, who knows. Um, but that will be the moment in which our, whatever our physical body will be united in perfection, physically and spiritually. That means your body would no longer be susceptible to the effects of sin and death. And that's where Paul says, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, when all this happens, then will come to pass. That saying, where, O death, is your victory, where, O death, is your sting. And that's what you see in Revelation 21, is that when this happens, there will be no more, at that point, no more death, no more effects of sin and death in this new world, uh, or in our own physical bodies. So I would say your spirit goes to be with the Lord. You see this with Elijah and Moses at the Transfiguration. You, you go and be with the Lord, but even those in heaven are waiting for this moment, um, for Jesus to come back into this world and to bring about what he has in store. And Peter says the only reason that he's really waiting at this point is because he desires all people to come to a knowledge of the faith. Um, he knows once he pulls that plug, pulls back the curtain, that's it. That's it. So I would say it's kind of, you know, your spirit goes be with the Lord, kind of in waiting, if you will. In the same way you talk about this second death, you know, when we think of hell, you know, anytime you see in the scriptures... Um, you know, Hades, you'll hear this word Hades a lot, um, or Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley right outside Jerusalem where going back to the days of Baal, remember they sacrificed the children and stuff, and it was horrific and all that kind of stuff, and it would happen right outside Jerusalem in this valley of Gehenna. And, of course, by the time Jesus gets there, it's been filled in, you know, and it's, it's past that day, but everybody knew the image, imagery. And so it seems that even the wicked who die, their spirits are waiting to be cast out into eternal fire, eternal darkness, whatever that looks like. It's eternal separation, um, waiting for this judgment day. In other words, the, it's just a verdict, guilty or innocent. And for those in Christ, therefore, there is now no condemnation, as Paul would say. So I would say you, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. You're waiting in a very beautiful, nice perfect heaven, but you're also waiting for the culmination of the physical world and the spiritual world to come together and what he has in store at the end of Revelation, if that makes sense, kind of, yeah. All right, there's another question over here. We had a question. Yes? How does Russia come into all this? How does Russia come into all this? Mm -hmm. Russia comes in when people start taking imagery here and start applying it to their current context, which you might be right in some, some ways. You also might be wrong in some ways. Um, when we get into the book of Revelation, we'll tie back to some things in Daniel and Ezekiel. 
that'll hopefully answer some of that question right there. Yeah, because that that's that might take us a couple weeks. <laughs> Any other questions? I have one. Yes. Those who don't believe, yeah. that's where I'd say their, their soul is going to be in the, the place of the dead, or Sheol is the kind of the word that the Old Testament used, but really in the New Testament you see Hades. Hell is kind of the place that's the second death, the, the ultimate like post-judgment, that's where they're casted out into. So whatever this new world, this new reality is, it, it's like the wicked will be outside of that. And so, you know, the kind of imagery we get is, you know, like, like a fire, that kind of stuff. But, but I would say their souls go to kind of be in a, a bad place, kind of like a, the opposite of heaven waiting place, but a bad place. But not like, you know, Catholics get into like purgatory and like an in-between. That's, yeah. There's nothing that's implied like that in Scripture. It's they're ultimately just waiting now for the final verdict. Think of it like... Um, Somebody who's been declared guilty who's just waiting their, their sentencing. Kind of like the Lazarus story? Yes, yeah, the rich man of Lazarus, yes, yeah. So it's a very horrific, dark, painful kind of place. Whatever that looks like, there's a lot of speculation and people talk about it. But, um, but that's probably the best way. To, you, the court scene is probably the best way to kind of envision it. Somebody's been declared guilty because they've rejected the Lord. And so now they're just waiting sentencing. They're waiting the, the, you know, the verdict, in essence, that has already been given. Now they're just waiting the sentencing, which is eternal separation and so on, which we'll probably, we can talk more about that when we definitely jump into Revelation for sure. So there's some people, you know, you'll may talk to that say, hey, we believe that you just go into like a, kind of like a, an anesthesia kind of moment where you just kind of are, so you know how when you're put under for surgery, you kind of, you're put under, and maybe it's 10 hours, you wake up, you're like, what happened? No time passed. Some people think that. I don't think Scripture alludes to that. Maybe, John, that's going back to your question. I think you go to, your soul is going to be in one of those two places, and you just wait what God has in store. Um, so, yeah. Other questions? Well, y'all got two weeks to chew on it, you know. We're going to start looking at the tribulation in two weeks. Um, but if you ever got questions, you, you've written them one down, always come talk to me. We can discuss it and go through it. John, we got one last question, Tom. So with this um, New Jerusalem and believers are brought into the idea that it's perfection, how do, how do you reconcile man still being present there? Does man have a free will? Is there a capability of sin? Or is, is there that an impossibility? So I would argue that the city is not a, what John is saying, because the angel tells you what the city is. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there may not be a literal city in the new creation. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But at least with here, the context is, the New Jerusalem is, we're not talking about an actual city, we're talking about a people. In the same way, and Paul in Ephesians 2 is talking about how we are built on 
kind of the prophets and, and the, the apostles. Well, you see that language in here. He says, um, like in verse 11, it's shown with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Had a great high walls with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates in the east, three in the north, three in the west, south. Uh, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is kind of language that you see Paul kind of alluding to. And this goes back, we'll look more at it, but this goes back to language that you see with the building of the temple and the tabernacle. But even in Jerusalem itself, that's why I bring out, especially in like Solomon's day, and he, later on he talks about his name on or in, this is where he chose to place his name, was the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And this is what the author of Hebrews kind of alludes to, right? The, the sh- these things are like shadows pointing to the real thing. And we even, I think it's, um, I can't remember if it's in Galatians or maybe it's in Hebrews where it talks about we belong to the free woman. Remember that he uses language from the Old Testament, we belong to the free woman, the free Jerusalem, right? Um, and so we are set free in Christ, we belong to Christ, we are free in Christ. And, and so this is what I would, um, so if you keep, keep going on here, um, let's see. Nothing, verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, remember what Paul says, no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me, right? The Holy Spirit of God now lives in you. You see this picture of Pentecost, right? With a the fire that once was filled the tabernacle and the temple is now breaking up and entering individual people, but also bringing them together as the church, this new creation, this new humanity. And so whatever God has in store, this is what Paul envisions, 1 Corinthians 15, being raised imperishable, raised with immortality, um, raised in honor and glory. Remember, he says that there, that's shown with the glory of God. And... So in other words, you, you are, a, again, a new humanity. And what you will be like, that's why John's saying, I don't know what we'll be like. All we know is we'll, we're going to be like him. And no longer susceptible to sin or death. So whatever that looks like, I think we have free, freedom, free will, and we can spend a lot of time what that looks like practically, um, but there will be no, no, um, no rebellion, no sin, no death. And this is not of yourselves. You could not do this. It's all of God. And this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in all this. In the same way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit worked in bringing about creation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit worked in bringing about this new creation. And that's the imagery you see in chapter 22. And this goes to the New Testament and Old Testament. But you see a river of the water of life, this living water shooting, coursing through the heart of the city. Um, And this was as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And that goes back to the beginning of Revelation. But down the middle of the great street of the city, 
and you have the tree of life and all these this fruits and all this kind of stuff. What, what you're envisioning is a perfect city with God in it and through it. In this city, the angel's saying, this is the church. And this is where Paul would say that in Christ, he's broken down any wall of hostility. There's no Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave or free. You are all one in Christ. You're distinct from each other in your gifts, ethnicities, and tongues, and so on. You're distinct from each other, but you're one. And now you fully, in a way, are made into the image of God. Because God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct from each other, but one with each other. And you, the church, are invited into the community of the Trinity to live happily ever after, forever and ever. That's why it says they will reign forever and ever in this new world. That's the imagery you see in Genesis, that we were supposed to reign in this creation, but we, we threw that into God's face, so God had to do something about it. And so now he's in the business of saving lives, giving his Holy Spirit, sending his Holy Spirit into us, making little sons and daughters. But what you will be ultimately, this goes back to 1 Corinthians 13, what you ultimately will be, is not yet known. You see in part, but one day you're going to see fully. And that's kind of here, like one day you're going to see fully of who we are in Christ and what he has in store for those who love him. So there's just a lot there. So I would say, I would say there's freedom. There will be free will. There will be we'll worship him and perfect communion with him. But there will be no temptation to turn from him, all that. Which we can't picture this world. This is a timeless world. This is a perfect world. We cannot even imagine it. It's so brilliant. Well, we better close. Uh, we'll continue our discussion. Send me your questions. Come find me. We'll talk some more. But Father, we thank you. We love you. Continue to give us more and more understanding of who you are, what you've done, what you are doing, what you're going to do. So Father, soften our hearts and minds to hear from you through your words. And Lord, we know you're coming back, and it'll happen like a thief in the night. May we all be ready. No matter what we envision or think about, may we all be ready. May we all be in position where we have received your only begotten Son, Jesus, as Lord and Savior of our lives. Knowing that there may not be a tomorrow. And Lord, for those who love you, for those who have received Jesus, placed faith in him, we thank you for what you have in store for them. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, thank you all.